Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to Leadership Reimagined's podcast. My name is Ilsa Rios. And I'm Lisa Garrett, and we are the co-leads for Leadership Reimagined. Leadership Reimagined is an initiative grounded in the values of love and liberation. Our mission is to help build leaderful movements with the vision and power to transform the world. Through our coaching services, peer leadership circles, and learning labs, we create reflective, joyful, and generative space for social justice leaders to be in community with each other, share strategies, and deepen their liberatory leadership practices. We encourage you to visit our website, www.leadership-reimagined.org, to learn more about us and to join our mailing list. In this episode, we talk with Kara Page and Erica Woodland, authors of Healing Justice Lineages, Dreaming at the Crossroads of Liberation, Collective Care, and Safety. We recorded this conversation back in December 2022 as a book release party to celebrate this anthology, described as both a profound offering and a call to action. Erica and Kara, along with brilliant contributors, truly honor lineage, legacy, ancestors, and movement leaders past and present, while radically imagining what comes next. If you are interested in watching the unedited version of this interview, we've included the YouTube link in the show notes. We are so glad to be in community with you and have so much gratitude for you, Erica Woodland, and you, Kara Page, for blessing us all with the gift that is the offering of this book. And in the spirit of how you opened up the book, I want to turn it to you, Kara, for the invocation. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much to the Leadership Reimagined team and, of course, my co-conspirator, Erica Woodland. To our ancestors, we give thanks to Great Spirit, Creator, and the universe, and the infinite names we have for the divine source from which everything emerges. To the elements, earth, fire, air, and water that nourish us and teach us about balance and equilibrium. To our blessed ancestors, whose dreams and visions for our collective liberation, our collective care, safety and imagination we work to realize. To our guardians, protectors, deities, gods, goddesses, and spirits that remind us of our divine purpose and dignity, we honor the way spirit has been central to this project, central to the work, and integral to the survival of our peoples. We ask for protection, clarity, courage, humility, and to remain steadfast in our commitment to total, absolute revolution and transformation. And may we be willing to sacrifice, offer, and give up all that holds us back from the collective dreams of our ancestors. We take this journey with all of you through time and space to radically listen, to find our people, to commit to the work of collective liberation and care and to transmute fear and domination. May we come to know and remember over and over and over again the abundance of wisdom available to us to realize our true destinies, our inheritance, and to be in right relationship with land, with body, with spirit, with creative energy, and everything around us in birthing a new transformative world. This is an excerpt from our invocation in the book, Healing Justice Lineages. We also want to name that today is Tony K. Bambara's day of her anniversary of passing into the ancestral realm. 
She was a teacher. She was one of my mentors and friends near the end of her life and the beginning of mine. And she continues to influence and impact and carry our energy, our work forward so, to the ancestors and especially to Tony Kate Bambara. Thank you, Kara, for starting us off in that way. I can clearly see the influence and the impact that so many of these ancestors have had. Your book just feels like a transmission and a gift that we will continue to use in our movement spaces. It really felt like an untangling as I read it. I was, I just had to put it down a few times and be like, whew. It didn't feel overly heady or academic. It didn't feel like speaking to the choir. It felt like a really a beautiful entry point and invitation with some real concrete roadmaps for how to utilize this work as a framework to apply for many of our movements in the work that we do. Can you tell us about your journeys? How did you two come together to co-write this book and this anthology? Thank you so much. I first want to just honor trajectory and leadership, layover, crossover, and intersections. So deep respect to Elsa Rios, who is an elder and mentor in the reproductive justice movement. And I had the honor of working with you in the trenches when RJ was but a thing, was but an idea as it evolved, led by Sister Song and Loretta Ross and all the many others that have added to its complexities. And then Lisa Garrett, the journey that we have taken in the trenches, in the work as well. So I just want to honor these relationships, right, that gather us to this point of transmission or the retelling or the reimagining as we have reshaped and reshaped and reshaped what is possible. And then, of course, my trajectory that brought me to Erica Woodland and the journey that that was. Just amazing. Just these cycles of transformation are very powerful. And we're talking a 20-year trajectory. So I just want to put that out front. So just to say, I am deeply indebted to this work because of the South, because of the rooted, powerful, transformative traditions of Black, Indigenous, migrant, queer and trans, disabled, sex worker, libertarian harm reduction, all the communities in the Southeast in this country that have been deeply leading transformative movements that deeply impacted my life as someone who returned to the South by way of my ancestors, returned later in life. And there are organizations that become the root, right? That become the pillar of movement and liberatory practice. Those including Southerners on New Ground, an LGBTQ liberation movement building, badass fierce organization for liberation, and Project South fighting against generations of poverty and genocide of Black and Brown people in the South. And those two pillars deeply held the work that emerged as the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective. And in that work, we began to excavate what our radical traditions, particular to the U.S. South, have been in honoring liberation with care, safety, and transformation, and asking the question, how do we remember and bring forth our care, healing strategies is integral to our political liberation, and asking the question, what does it mean to have our medicine? erased, co-opted, displaced, bought, and sold back to us? And what does it mean to decriminalize 
are practitioners who are being persecuted for holding care practices at the crossroads of nation and care, including birth workers, including energy first, body-based healers, including transformative therapists, doctors and nurses, understand the role of holistic care as a virtual practice and as the possibility of application and change. And so I, I'll lay it there and toss it to my comrade. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you so much, Lisa and Elsa, for creating the space for us today. This is such an honor, such, such an honor. I love, Kara, how you've already laid out. There's just tons of relationships that made this moment possible and that is really core to this project overall. I have to shout out my beautiful mother, now an ancestor, and also the community in Baltimore, Maryland, where I'm from, because I think the conditions here pretty early on really shaped an analysis for me around capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy, and really watching how that intersection impacted my life, impacted my family, and really thinking about folks who are willing to sacrifice everything to care for the people that they love, right? So I came to this work by way of prison abolition, by way of organizing for the freedom of all political prisoners, doing anti-war organizing in the early 2000s with people of color in Baltimore, and really thinking about harm reduction and the intersection of the prison industrial complex and the HIV AIDS pandemic at the time. And so some of the organizations that helped to shape my political analysis and my spiritual analysis include critical resistance. I was required to attend their Critical Resistance East Conference in a class I was taking about the history of the Black Panther Party. And that pretty much helped make the decision to move away from becoming a doctor and towards organizing and movement building. I also want to shout out Eddie Conway and Dominique Conway, my elders, spiritual political mentors. Eddie Conway is a former political prisoner and a former Black Panther. And the two of them really shaped my understanding of as a young person, both around the responsibility that we have to continue to organize and to like situate ourselves inside of legacy. And also what does that mean to do that really rooted in context and conditions and the kind of way things play out here in Baltimore hit real different than other parts of the country. And so that piece around specificity and that piece around relationship, but that also that piece around political development is super important. I want to shout out Power Inside, which is an organization that I got to work with for a number of years that really helped shape my understanding of harm reduction and the radical roots of harm reduction. And a lot of the members of that organization also helped shape my consciousness and really the understanding that we can't do this work of organizing without having strategies to address trauma from state violence, generational trauma, and trauma from interpersonal violence and community violence. And so I have so much gratitude for the countless people who sat with me, who got me together, who challenged me, and who called me back into alignment around, in particular, abolition and what that means on the ground. You know, I do want to tell a little story, Kara, about the ways that we intersected, because it was actually, <laughs> I think, around, I'm sure we crossed paths before 2015, but in 2015, I would like to call it a movement initiation. You know how you have those experiences and movement where you're in space, holding space, and things start to go left, and you find those people who are able to help anchor and ground and hold it, the intensity of emotion and pain and hurt in our community. And so that was my first real deep dive into 
self-care page and just your brilliance and your magic. And I remember in that space, you were a real steady, steady drumbeat around like, this is a lot to hold, but we can hold it. We can hold it together. And in that space, spirit was really central. And I remember that well. So when I started the National Queen Trans Therapist of Color Network, I was like, Kara, do you want to be on our advisory board? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what we're doing, but I know you need to be here. So I really also want to lift up that my understanding of healing justice and real like anchoring in HJ as a political and spiritual framework came from you. And actually, you're the reason that our organization is very clearly an HJ organization. I did not know at the time that I was part of the lineage through my harm reduction work. And I want to shout out Shira Hassan for helping to get me together around that piece of the missing history. But really, this project has been such an honor to really see these threads being rewoven together and to really combat a lot of the erasure that we're seeing. I know we're still on the first question, but we're not done yet. Hold on, hold on. Okay, Erica, I need to say that I was deeply moved by how you held that complicated movement space. And you know, there are some people you meet and you're like, damn, that, that's a badass right there. Like they're going <laughs> to hold the line, toe the line. And ask people to show up with their best selves. And Erica was phenomenal in that difficult LGBTQ liberation PLC space. And I also want to name that I think when Healing Justice first arrived in the beginnings of the South, when we were wrestling with what does it mean to name a Healing Justice frame inside of abolition, inside of fighting increased fascism in the South, inside of an anti-immigration reform that was spreading, starting in the Southeast in the early 2000s as an extension of fascism and xenophobia and increased anti-Black racist violence that was increasing in the South in the early 2000s. There's so many moving parts to what brought us to a moment of burnout, brought us to a moment of generational trauma, brought us to a moment of crisis-oriented organizing that called for a moment of slowing down the collective nervous system and asking of ourselves, how do we take care of each other and our collective grief as liberatory practice, right? And then there was this fast motion of doing it on the ground in real time as the Kindred Seven Human Justice Collective, as other practitioners showed up out of the U.S. Social Forum. This is all the arc in the book that shows you where things move and how they're carried, partnerships with Insight, Allied Media Conference, so on and so forth. And then this weird moment of co-optation, capitalism, and objectification of an idea or a concept. This request to suddenly make a movement strategy into a product. Kindred being asked to do trainings for other people around the country. And we're like, wait, we don't know the conditions in Iowa, Southern LA. We're down here trying to survive in the South. And then I meet 10 years later, Erica asking the same questions. How do you root in context and condition? How do we make sure this doesn't become a product? How has this been diffused of political analysis that's rooted in an abolition frame that is pro-Black, pro-queer trans, pro-Black feminist, if we're not entering through that lens and understanding the role of healing and care as a disruption to the medical industrial complex, to eugenics, to surveillance, what are we doing? That's when I knew I was like, oh, <laughs> we have found some alignment. And Erica, you pushed me 
to come out of the woodwork because I wanted to hide. When I saw the diffusion and just the mess that came out of people trying to turn something powerful and remove it from the South, remove it from Black feminists, remove it from abolitionist Black radical traditions in the South, I thought I could just, I'll just leave it be and let it ride its wave. And Erica said, oh no, come along. Let's redirect, let's reshape, let's reimagine what it looks like now in real time. I deeply trust, love, and respect you for Eric and all the ways this anthology in so many ways from so many voices across the regions realigns what we meant, what we're here to do, and what we are about to do. So thank you for leading that. It's a great segue to our next question, but I just want to say that the clarity that you put into the book, it's not a sit on a pillow and let's just like put all of the kindness out there in the world and hope that the world is a better place. It is so grounded in story and history. And there's a piece that you put in the book saying that the internet can make gurus out of thieves. And the fact that you had already been credited so much, right? I know they gave me chills when I read it. <laughs> That you've already been credited and could have just rode that wave, but you have pulled in, again, ancestor, mentors, and collaborators to really show, no, this is rooted in something. And you just can't co-opt something because it sounds good or it's on trend. So again, this is hitting at a moment when it's on trend, but this wave, as you both just shared, has been a long time coming. And you've been doing this work for a long time. Yeah, I got goosebumps. That's all I got to say. I got goosebumps. So thank you so much for really starting us out with this idea of how healing justice has to be truly grounded and contextualized. That's really important. And, you know, at Leadership Reimagine, we're all about praxis, theory and practice, right? And so can you talk a little bit about what practices keep you both grounded? Share a little bit of your own magic, what things have been challenging, and what and where do you go to get the grounding and the support that you need? I love this question. I think it's really important because this project is not about Karen and I as individuals. There are so many people out here living, still doing the work, still not being credited, who contributed, who wrote, who we interviewed, who we went to for guidance. And so those relationships have been super, super grounding. And, you know, I also think that my relationship with Karen and being able to do this with a comrade has been really grounding because I can't imagine putting out a project like this alone. It's big. And there were so many times where we anchored each other and we reflected each other and reassured each other and, you know, ensured that we not only stayed aligned with the political and spiritual imperative, but also brought in ceremony, brought in spirit. We've come together a couple of times on land that is special to us, on land that is special to our ancestors to really listen right? To listen to the land, to listen to those particular guides that kept us stuck in the middle of the night saying, you need to say this, you need to write that. And so there's this piece around integrity that feels so clear throughout our process that helped to keep us grounded and being in integrity with each other, with the hundreds of relationships that this book is holding in right relationship to land. And also thinking about like, this is for our descendants. This is for our ancestors. This is for everyone that's here and watching this now, watching this in the future, who is committed to throw down for collective liberation, right? And to really do the rigorous work to understand this framework 
and what it can offer in this moment. And so I think a lot of those pieces helped when, you know, I think for me personally, I did not sign up to write a book. That's not what happened. What happened was the ancestors brought an opportunity to me to write something. And I was like, I don't need to write a book. Like a book needs to be written about this history and lineage because as Kara named, I was pretty appalled by the number of people who were using HJ who had never heard of Kindred, had never heard of Kara, were getting some of their things off the internet, getting some of their things from white folks who actually aren't part of the history that's mapped in the book. And I was mad about that. I was like, how dare you? Like, these are my comrades. Like, they have worked very hard and tirelessly. And that's not going to happen on my watch, especially, you know, starting an org that was newer to the conversation. A lot of our role is to, like, make sure people are rooted in history and lineage. But ultimately, we have to think about, like, the work that we're here to do and what is our right role. And we kept coming back to that over and over again. So I thought I was going to project manage an anthology being written. I was like, Kara and all the other people who were at these movement spaces that I actually wasn't in, write this book, y'all. It's going to be amazing. I got you on the logistics. And that turned into, you know, we each wrote like seven chapters of this book. And then we had six or seven chapters written by contributors and interviews. And so it was a huge undertaking. And if I knew how much work it was going to be at the beginning, I would have told Tantlesters, no, thank you. But I'm so glad that they tricked me because there was a lot of undoing and it showed me what I was made of. And surprise, surprise, when you're writing a book about healing justice, you have to actually be in the practice of healing justice. And so it meant confronting wounds and confronting old patterns and confronting things that were really hard to do while also researching and writing and interviewing and looking at transcripts. It was a roller coaster, but now that the book is here, it's like, I can't even imagine a different process. Oh my goodness, that is so powerful. What a beautiful story. I just want to say what Erica said. Uh, through all the pain and grief and joy and remembering and rehonoring. I mean, this is an intergenerational project that we have created here because you have newer folks who've joined onto HJ. And let me be clear, there's no finite line. HJ begins here and then. We're talking about lineage. We're talking about trajectory. We're talking about pre-colonization, the medicines that have existed. What have we accessed? How have we cared for each other? And what does that look like? Healing justice was but an opportunity to pilot something, to say, wait a minute, how do we talk about trauma and care in the spaces where we are constantly pummeling trauma and care for our people? Because the state is, is killing us, right? So this idea of practice and memory work I like to talk about is hard. It's hard to remember how to stay present in our care strategies and then also be honest when we don't have the capacity to care or we're struggling with caring for ourselves and each other. So all the things that came up, much to what Erica beautifully said, it was in real time during COVID, an amazing Transmission, right? I love that word, Lisa. I, I use it often because we were transmitting and reinterpreting and realigning our core in such a moment. And I am forever changed because of the meditation and the magic that came out of this book. And it was painful. We birthed. Like, I don't recall that it took nine months, but that's what I tell people. <laughs> we birthed a book in nine months. And to do that with a comrade in partnership we have very different styles and ideas and we are cosmologically alive, but sometimes the way we communicate, we're like, what did you just say? 
And then we had magicians come in and help edit and unravel some of the thinking. Props to Lisa. You know, so the journey is we're still on it. And what becomes of it and how it changes me and us, I'm I'm here for it. Deep, deeply learning. So beautiful. So beautiful. There's just this one quote from Tony K. Bambara that says, wholeness is no trifling matter. What does that mean to you? It was such a powerful quote. I mean, oh, wait, I'm going to try to say this quickly, but I might not be able to. I really want to bring in the disability justice organizers that we sat with in the early 2000s and as Kindred Collective and as myself, as a queer Black organizer doing cultural work with Sins Invalid out in the Bay. And I was like, what do y'all think about the word wholeness? Can we unravel? Can we unpack this? Because I hear movement saying we will be whole. And I'm challenged by that word. And we talked about the word healing, too. We're like, what the fuck is healing? Excuse me. But, you know, like, how does that not re-perpetuate curative model of care? Who needs to be healed? Who's healing? But Tony K. Mabara just did it for me because she was saying, you know, wholeness, not in the sense of physicality of wholeness, which I've talked a lot with disability justice organizers, But what does it mean if we're defining our own wholeness in relationship to cells, spirits, stars, constellations? Let's just like pull it out a little bit that wholeness is not a physical reality. It could be a spiritual and or a cosmic reality. Mm -hmm. And so that what if we are imagining however we arrive, we are in relationship to stars and cells and beings beyond our reality, that wholeness is an interaction, an interdependence that disability justice centers. That's the kind of wholeness we're talking about, that my care is dependent on your care and my wholeness is dependent on your experience of being and living and existing in a way that feels liberatory for all of us. So that's what I say to that, is that I feel that Tony was speaking on a much other level, and that's what she does in her writing. It's multi, multi multi-layered. It is not limited in one way. Beautiful. Whenever I read that quote, I think what it does inside of me is just really combat this healing as this, like, beautiful, lovely process. It's all neat and buttoned up. Like, there's something about the messiness there's something about the incompleteness there's something about the amount of suffering that we choose to go through collectively for the process of transformation that requires us to take it seriously and so i think when i come back to this quote now in the context of the co-optation of feeling justice it really helps to reorganize the work that i'm here to do right and the work that a lot of my comrades are here to do around like this is hard (laughs) And what do we need to do our things together and to stay in integrity and to recommit ourselves to interdependence? Beautiful. Thank you both. Ooh. Again, the transmissions just keep coming. So we're going to flow with that. But you know, it also reminds me of a quote that talked about the antidote to exhaustion is not rest, it's wholeheartedness. And so we know that you wrote this book during the pandemic. And there's another ancestor that you mentioned in the book, our dear sister, Tatiana Cordova, who passed as the executive director of the Urgent Action Fund in Latin America and the Caribbean. And on her journey, shared some of the teachings that she had from her teacher around the pandemic, not just being a virus, 
that we condemn for the destruction caused, but also it's an energy that provides openings. And so Elsa and I talked about that a little bit as that has shaped our trajectory on this path and our offerings. Can you both share some of how writing this book in these conditions, how this helped shape your offering? Yes, beautiful question and deep respect and honor to Tatiana Cordova. Fantastic. Fantastic, amazing being, and now ancestor and star and planet and universe. Can't wait to see how she re-manifests. And I want to say, yes, the transmission of this book, the offering, the gift of this book, is we knew we were in a moment of new cosmologies, a moment of transformation and change. We didn't imagine the portal of death and life as something that was linear or succinct, but rather a transmutation of what could we become, knowing that this will push us into new realities that we would have never imagined, right? Complete lockdown, complete stillness, complete heightened collective nervous system, complete uprisings and rallies against policing. You know, there's so many pieces of COVID that go beyond dis-ease, we saw it as a moment of regeneration and collective renewal. And to imagine collapse, that is a collapse of the nervous system or collective spirit or collective grief of our people that requires a listening, a reimagination and a recalibration of what it is we could do for our people and for each other, because we just had to slow it down. And I know that was painful, fearful. I'm not trying to make it some beautiful thing. It was hot and messy. But I'm saying it opened portals of possibility. And in our book, with this anthology for us, renamed Healing Justice as an opportunity to explore lineage of collective care, of collective grief, and of safety inside of political moments that called for political and spiritual imperatives that we feel COVID did, right? Because it showed the crash course of white supremacy, fascism, xenophobia, and ableist supremacy inside of a global pandemic and showed all our things, revealed all our fears, our anger, distrust, and just state violence and control. So for us, this book, this moment, this ancestor invitation was to learn the role of healing and transformation inside of this portal of death, of grief, and transmutation. Yes. You know, there are folks who were lukewarm towards HJ, I think in part because of the ways that it's being misused and misrepresented, but also because of some of the kind of culture inside of our movements that is in the process of changing around, like, how do we show up for each other when generational trauma in particular and trauma due to interpersonal community violence is happening in real time while we are building power and while we are putting ourselves at collective risk. And so you could not ignore that in the same way in 2020. And it was so important to be like, so Kendrick Ben told y'all, Ben told y'all that we could be doing this differently. And so it was really amazing to be able to do this project at that time because it was a moment and it was really, really important. And we're still in that moment. But I also think that a lot of the traditions that I practice and a lot of the teachers that have talked about this time are like, you know, a lot of folks 
have been really pushing for the collapse of these structures because they are so anti-life, so anti-human and all beings, right? But then there are those of us who've been very, very, very hurriedly trying to birth the new that we need. And so this book is in a lot of ways laid out to like really play with time, right? The past, the present, the future, they're all happening actually in this moment. There is no separation. Time is not linear. And so part of the feel of the book is that it's spiralic and it's asking us to really integrate the learnings and lessons. We have such a rich legacy and I learned so much more just through this book. But how do we also situate the particular moment that HJ as a framework was gifted to us by Kindred and Kara? How do we also just name like here are groups on the ground who are doing this work and have been doing this work? right? To give concrete examples. It felt really important. How do we re-anchor folks in the movements and frameworks that inform what we're up to? And then what do we need to get ahead of? So there's a lot of grappling with these questions that I've heard Kara and other folks from Kindred talk about, like in this present moment, but also we don't want to be having these same conversations 20 years from now. Indeed, indeed. You know, One of the premises of the book is that collective trauma must be healed collectively, right? And there's the call for practitioners to also do their own work. So can you share more about these both? Yes, yes, and yes. And I want to also say that we enter very differently in the work. And I can't impress upon you also the partnership between Erica and I and many others. He is setting the bar for queer and trans liberation around transformative care through a therapy, psychiatry, you know, counseling lens, whatever that looks like in that sphere of learning and academic setting and state mandatory reporting, you know, just like really wrestling with. As part of the healing justice framework, we always had to understand what is the role of care by state when it's state defined versus individual, community, family defined. Part of the work is to understand what do we mean by care and who can imagine it and create it. And that being said, we want to give a shout out to people asking the same questions in their own liberatory framework and entering from different positionalities. That includes Shir Hassan and her, her bomb-ass book, Saving Our Own Lives, A Liberatory Practice of Harm Reduction, and Susan Raffo, a healer and abolitionist organizer in the Midwest. In her book, Liberated to the Bone, Histories, Bodies, Futures, both of them featured in our anthology. We're all political fam, but their books are also pushing another layer of analysis around the role of practitioners, whatever and how you define that. Practitioners can be sex workers, harm reduction organizers, therapists, energy or based healers. You know what I mean? Let's, let's expand what practitioner means inside of understanding due diligence, discipline, and rigor. That we can all have a practice, but who are we accountable to, right? And that is part of understanding healing justice for us, is you've got to do your due diligence. You can't just come in and say, I'm a healer. Well, what's the traditions? Who are your teachers? What's the lineage? And how do you stay accountable to the communities you're serving and working with? So again, you don't become a commodity or a guru, an expert of something that's not yours. So let's make sure. We always make sure that that's clear. So to answer your question, collective trauma must be healed collectively because we are looking at an understanding of the interdependence of care, 
shoot, we're looking at dismantling the understanding of care as a model of I can fix you, I can cure you, instead of who are we in the core of our beings and in relationship to each other and the earth and other beings. Like, how do we relate to care in a way that imagines, I call it a cosmology of care, that is redistributing this idea that some of us know better and others of us just don't know yet? Care looks different based on your context, your condition, your identity, your where you are placed. It looks different when it's anchored care. And I'm going to give a toss out to Maurice Mitchell and in his article recently on building resilient organizations. Care can look unanchored when it's used to sabotage versus when it's used to collectively define and care for each other. Versus saying, my care is a hierarchy over your care, right? We're asking the question, how do we find balance, interdependence, mutual integrity, and a responsibility for each other that does not pit us against each other, but also doesn't put the practitioner role as an expert that doesn't have lived experience and can't make mistakes or harm people? Because that is not real. I think that what you were just naming around that power dynamic is really important. I think one of the things that we hope practitioners will do wherever you're situated is if you're going to use healing justice as part of your work, that you understand what it means, you understand where it comes from. And there's this piece around, you know, everything that we're experiencing is happening in the collective. And when you're in the role of practitioner, because you're holding space for people with vulnerability and people are, you know, healing and spiritual work is risky and a lot of harm can happen in those contexts and does happen. And so what does it mean to use discernment around, you know, when it's time to pause, when it's time to consult with your council of comrades and elders? When do you need to go back to your teachers? When do you need to name when you're out of your depth? I think it's really, really important no matter where your position, but in particular for those folks who are positioned as an extension of the medical industrial complex, therapists, social workers, doctors, nurses, et cetera. Like, you know, we have to be accountable for the harm that that system is enacting in our communities. And are we going to be complicit or are we going to disrupt? And if we are going to disrupt that harm, how do we do that together? How do we do that strategically? So there are these really live questions that feel really important, but there's some layers of our healing that, you know, only you can know about, right? So there is this piece around, like, you have to be engaged in the ongoing self-work to hold the responsibility, the sacred responsibility of being any kind of practitioner in these times. And again, it just comes back to integrity, which I feel like is one of the bigger takeaways from this project. Can we give you a core example of something we recently Done together? Is that, yeah? yeah. Okay, girl, let's, let's get in there. I just want to say I have the honor and the privilege to work with Erica Francisca Coronado and Portis Coronado and the, well, multiple practitioners and healers that we have come across in different realms, right? So the Health, Healing, Justice, and Liberation Statement was a statement of medical, public health practitioners, healers, and birth workers in response to condemning the forced sterilizations at the Irwin County Detention Center in the state of Georgia. And we were asked in partnership and relationships, long-term relationships with Project South and a whole 
10 year plus campaign against prisons and detention centers in the Southeast. But in particular, it was a moment during 2020, I believe, where a nurse, a Black nurse from the community that worked in the Irwin County Detention Center, Nurse Don Wooten, basically blew the whistle and said, I will no longer participate in the coercion, including sterilization abuse and neglect during a global pandemic of all the people inside the detention center. It also took the role of all the survivors to come forth and give testimonials that basically showed uh, many years, multiple years of neglect, in particular by one doctor, also a person of color, but a system, a much larger system of prisons and detention centers that we know have used health to manipulate, dominate, coerce, sterilize, and harm and abuse people because they feel they are, I, I think, less than human and assume that incarcerated people deserve it, right? Because we're, they are seen as expendable. We don't believe that. We challenge that. But we needed to move quickly as practitioners to ask that question. And for me as an organizer of healing justice, doing healing work that is much more culturally based, doing memorials of sites of harm and abuse, here we were with a site of harm and abuse that we had to call on other practitioners to say, focus on supporting Don Wooten and the survivors, but let's also question the role of healers in participating in this continued abomination of these kinds of practices used on our people. And so we gathered folks like Harriet A. Washington, you know, a writer of the dark history of medical experimentation. We got support from Dorothy Roberts, Dr. Donna Eileen Davis, Dr. Michelle Morris, and organizers, nurses, healers, health practitioners, including Erica Woodland and Frances Coronado, to understand the role of where practitioners are organizers, where we must take risk when we can safely to assess the systems of care that are causing harm in our name. And how can we use healing justice and a critique of the medical industry as a place of immense violence as an extension of state control and eugenics, right? And we came through a reproductive justice lens, a disability justice lens, a harm reduction lens, even an environmental justice and transformative justice lens, because we were also in alignment with the campaign to shut it down for the betterment of the people and for the survivor of the land that this place is built on, causing immense toxicity for the communities it's around. The prison industry is as dangerous to the environment as it is to the people. So that statement was very powerful in partnership again with the campaign that had been ongoing really for decades in the South against the detention center and deep respect to Project South for trusting us as healers and health practitioners because they believe in healing justice and transformative justice as strategy. Then we called on Erica and Francisca and asked the question of Enquitin and Latina Action Therapy Network, how can we support the survivors? They've come forth with testimonial. We don't want to just drop them. We asked Erica and Francisca to hold a transformative therapist-led intervention to support the care of the survivors. And I'll let Erica go more into detail, but it is a perfect example of when you cross spheres, right? Organizers, healers, practitioners, all on the side of an abolitionist healing justice lens. And to take the risk to partner together when it is a risk, it has been divided 
by the state, by capitalism, to not have healers and health practitioners work together. Yeah, it was such a beautiful moment because when our networks got invited to be a part of this project, it was rooted in history of relationship. It was rooted in like a decade of organizing. And because of the political alignment and all of the relationships that were part of this project and our relationships to practitioners in our network, part of what Francisca and I did was really think about how are we orienting and doing political education of folks who are coming into this work? especially as we are building out bases of practitioners that are committed to abolition, that are committed to healing justice. And, you know, the, the offering actually was not therapy, right? Because what we know is that that container is very, very limiting. The offering was emotional support that is rooted in an understanding of some of the violence that the survivors experienced, knowing once you start working with folks, it's like people have been surviving way before they got to Irwin, right? And what does it mean to actually hold an ongoing space where practitioners who are sitting and holding those stories of trauma are also having the space to collectively unpack, all the while being regrounded and reoriented into healing justice and why we actually need politicized practitioners to be available to support things like this. You can't get your political education on the spot, right? That's really dangerous. One of the things that we know is often therapists and healers are asked to kind of helicopter in and have no context and just, you know, save the day. We're not trying to engage in rescuing. What we're trying to build, you know, it takes years. It takes decades. It takes relationship. It takes risk. And so what's amazing is that we included a case study in the book and also a tool that you can go through to evaluate your intervention. If you're trying to do an HGA intervention, here's some of the things to think about. So in addition to ceremony and spirit and history and research like we need people to come away with like really tangible things to say okay this is how you do this thing and to kind of do some demystifying thank you erica and kara for sharing some of the powerful examples there are so many in the book but i think the point of the book too is that you don't have to be experts but also just trust your experience trust what you know so we've already taken the arc of this journey through the past your process for writing the book and coming together and some of the framework and present that you offer in the book. As we turn the corner and go into future, we want to ask you both to speak to what's next. What do you see that you're building and how do you see this book integrated into our work? I'm happy to start us off here. You know, because HJ is being used in really interesting ways by different groups of people, we really wanted to kind of clarify some of the ways that we feel like it's being misused and some of the opportunities. And so when we think about movements, it's really important that we're thinking about the ways that healing justice is actually being weaponized against workers that are being exploited, right? It's like, you're working eight hours a week. We're not going to do anything about our culture, our system, your work plan, but you should absolutely take care of yourself. And we're not going to do anything to support you to figure out how to do that. And there have been a couple of times where I know I got got where I was like, oh, that's what we're doing here. That's actually not liberatory and that's actually not what this is intended for. I think at the other extreme, and some of this was named a little bit earlier, is also folks using HJ to try to create organizations that actually meet every single need that a person has. And that's really hard because our people are suffering. Like, I don't know about y'all, but this work 
is very taxing. The level of personal and collective transformation that we're asking people to show up for is a lot. And what are the bounds and limitations of what an org can actually do, right? Well, Karen and I have had really good conversations around like, can you have HJ proper in the nonprofit industrial complex? Or being really clear about like, here's what it can do and here's what it can't do. So we want to encourage folks to really interrupt the conflation of healing justice with self-care. It's really dangerous. It's been happening for a long time and it's not going to get us where we need to go. And part of what that looks like is having healers and health practitioners in the conversation at the beginning. We should not be an afterthought. Oh, people got traumatized at this action. Let's call Erica and Kara. Come fix it. You know, that also is putting practitioners at risk in different ways. Yes and yes. I love what you said. And we often talk about infrastructure. It feels that we are still bound to the constructs of self-care as a strategy. It's important, right? As you said, but that was not the intention of healing justice. We really weren't moving it out 22 years ago to understand the level of collective care in relationship to massive rallies, onslaught of state violence, disappearance and execution of our leaders. You know, like how do you gather to hold collective grief and care in real time, even if that means debriefing the impact of being inside of a rally or action where there's tons of police and opposition? How do you help the group manage how we collectively bring down the nervous system, check for each other's safety and well-being, and just plan it out in a way that feels integral to the strategies before, during, and after the rally, the action as part of the campaign, right? It's not, as you said, Erica, an ad hoc. But what we're also asking for is infrastructure, because here we are in 2022, and I can't tell you how many times healers come to me and say, well, how do we know what's going down on the ground with each other? Here we are at the height of anti-Roe v. Wade, watching birth workers organize the hell out of the front line because they started to map where they were, where the abolitionist birth workers were that were going to take high-risk situations, put danger into their hands, into their experience to manifest safety for people who need abortions. So that's a great example in real time how birth workers have been organizing and the risk of assessing what they could or couldn't do is part of the strategy. But what do they have least of? resources to build it and to have to keep going back to philanthropists and saying collective care should not only be the height of your docket when we're in a pandemic. We needed it 10 years ago to build out how we were going to talk about collective care and safety as part of our political organizing strategies. So let's not look again when we have increased natural disasters that includes policing, colonization, slavery, and genocide, right? as something that will only respond to rapidly and not have things in place. Organizers, please call on healers and health practitioners to help guide and co-design so we're not coming in at the end. We're not here to save the day. It's not possible. That comes out of a very capitalist, white neoliberal idea of fixing the situation. Let us plan it out. Let's work out worst and best case scenarios and imagine what care and safety looks like when we're not in the moment of crisis. Let's roll it out, plan it out, and have our infrastructure in place 
and go beyond the United States. I just came back from Kenya and met with dope organizers and healers from across the continent. I've met people in Latin America. I'm meeting transformative doctors and nurses fighting against racial inequities in medicine. How are we moving together in formation? We are a base. We are here to be tapped and organized. We are not just here to cure. And that's not our goal. We're here to move in formation for abolition and transformation. We have some great questions coming in, so maybe we can cover some of those. There was a question from Anne who asked, can you talk about how contributing to the book and your process of collaborating model your healing justice value? Is it possible to name one of the ways that your collaborations have changed as you pursued meaningful collectivity? One of the things that I was thinking about this morning is how this process has really sharpened my analysis and I think our collective analysis around healing justice. And because we did so many interviews and then we had amazing contributors write about aspects of what we're talking about, I think we're in a new place. I'm like, what I thought healing justice was before the process of creating this book and now very, very different. And I think there's, I feel like I'm in more accountability actually around the original intention and the possibilities of HJ. I do want to say that we're deeply spiritual Black abolitionists. And we have brought ceremony in and out throughout this book and the process. And I know that we'll bring ceremony into our listening tour that we're taking with the book next year. Hey, hey. And the work that we continue to do interdependently of each other with our own political projects. Spirit got taken out of HJ. Not surprising. It usually does. But we always ask the question in the South, in Southern organizing, in Black radical tradition and Indigenous radical tradition, is how does spirituality hold a life force in the ways we organize? Spirit could be music. It could be cultural work. It could be so many things. And I have learned, and my ancestors have taught me, that spirit is integral to liberation. And so it deeply informed and shaped the work of healing justice, and it still does. So we've always kept that center and we've always asked spirit questions. We've done different things to hold a spiritual imperative like Erica named throughout. And that's been very important, even when it gets hard. Right? Yeah. What I really appreciate too is that this book, while the language may be new to some, like that commitment to bring in healing justice practitioners for us in our practices also included traditional culture bearers, Right who also are doing and continue to do their work to unlearn all the ways in which colonialism also influences our traditional culture bearers. So to bring language and a frame that our movements can relate to and that institutions and funders can also contribute to is powerful. And I know that you also played a role in that work as well. So there's a couple of questions in here that are asking about healing justice in the context outside of the United States. I know you just got back from Kenya where you attended the Sendness Republic with the Urgent Action Fund in Africa. Amazing. We're mentioning lifting up UAF a lot for the work that they have done consistently to be in allyship and lift up healing justice. Absolutely. Hey, hey, region, Adela, what's up, what's up? Okay, so I'm starting to see who some of our fam are in the room. I was like, you can answer this question, y'all. Here's where we're at. We don't have the infrastructure. So we're not having conversations across false borders of geography. It's been planned that way, but also many people have died to hold on to memory of tradition. 
they're not going to share it outside of their particular political cultural context, right? Going to Urgent Action Fund's event just recently on healing justice, which is part of a whole combined strategy that Urgent Action Fund as social justice feminist philanthropists around the world are naming or witnessing that we must fund cultural, spiritual, care, healing practices and traditions as part of the movement work. So Urgent Action Fund, shout out to y'all for the work that you do to elevate and support people building infrastructure. And in real time, it looks so different in every political context. Some people are doing healing around terrorism. Some people are doing healing around war, state violence, interpersonal violence, child sexual abuse, so on and so forth. Like it looks so different in so many realms of how people are doing it. And quite honestly, what I learned in Kenya is culture workers, artists, healers, anyone who identifies as holding a healing-based process and practice, they're exhausted because they're holding the line for a practice that is still not seen as integral to liberation. So we're still being asked to fly in, do some ad hoc shit that doesn't integrate or grow beyond the moment of crisis. So what I'm witnessing is watching healers really design anything that could be called healing houses, healing circles. There is an ecosystem of care not called healing justice in other parts of the world. It's called holistic security. Shout out to Yelena Givorovich, who's co-editor of a book on holistic security in Latin America with Jane Berry that came out 20 years ago. They were having the same conversation in Latin America. I believe that's the same in parts of Africa. I just haven't met those elders that were saying, this is what we were doing for care and safety. But we all are starting to find ways to archive. I can't tell you, I had multiple conversations with people from Lebanon, parts of Africa, someone from Benin, South Africa, multiple people saying, we need to archive our traditions not in the sense of capitalizing on it, but how we're going to hold memory. And it is a moment, y'all. And I think COVID accelerated it, where we had to ask the question, who is passing these traditions on? How do we intervene on the persecution of our practices and the real danger of healers being killed for their medicines? And that was an initial question when healing justice emerged. I was looking at the global South and indigenous healers and farmers being targeted and surveilled for their medicines by large U.S. corporations in partnership with the governments of their countries. So, you know, there's a lot to learn here, but there is a risk in how we share, where we share it. But I need to say, philanthropists, trust that we can do it ourselves. You know what I mean? trust that healers need to be in the design of that and health practitioners who are transformative abolitionists. I mean, I think the piece that I've heard you say a number of times is people are calling this work something different based on where they are. So we don't need to take a framework based in a very specific U.S. context and then put it out globally. We actually need to do something we did in this book, which is listen, like, some of the groups in this book wouldn't necessarily call their work HJ, but we're like, in terms of like the arc we're trying to build around healing justice, collective care and safety, your work is aligned with what we're talking about in, in this broader ecosystem that we're trying to strengthen. I also was challenged by Hakima from the Black Feminist Fund when I was in Kenya, who said, you know, you need to make sure 
that your language doesn't set precedent for then how global northern philanthropists will only fund work in yeah. other parts of the world. Yeah. And I thought, oh, no, I never called it healing justice so that a funder would make you call it that. But that is the dynamic, right? That's capitalism and U.S. imperialism at its best. So I'm going to keep saying that. Thanks, Hakima. Do yeah. not let us set the precedent. It's called collective care. It's called healing traditions. It's called holistic security. It's called what my mama taught me. Like, whatever it is, we have to value what it looks like. And there is a divisiveness, too, of who can or cannot do it. Sex workers have set the course on taking care of each other in relationship to care and safety. And that is never heralded as something that is political, spiritual imperative of livelihood. So let's talk about it, because as far as healing justice is concerned, we've always looked at the economies, the street survival-based economies that shape how we take care of each other. It's not based on if you can go to the pharmacy or to the best doctor. It's based on how do we roll it out in real time on the ground, in our hood, in our car, wherever the fuck you need to get it done, safely, respectfully. Um, and the stories, again, just so powerful. And they come through so clearly in the book, all throughout. And it really does, I mean, true to the name of the book, it really does acknowledge lineage. And it puts it forward as a framework, not as the path forward. It is a framework that folks can then use that analysis and get into it to apply within their own context. And I know that y'all have partnered with folks to actually help them deepen on their path for how they want to support and be in relation to this work. So thank you, Tara and Erica, for joining us today. So happy to be here with you now. So grateful for what you have offered. I also want to just thank the funders we lifted up, Hive, the Hive Fund for Climate and Gender Justice, for continuing to do this work in such a principled way. They, I know, called you in, Kara, early on to help inform how they do that strategy. So it's not just lip service. And they have seeded our work also. Wellspring Fund and the Irving Harris Foundation, some of our early funders on this journey. Just real quick, deep love and gratitude to the Leadership Reimagined team. Y'all are epic. I love you. Thank you for all the work you do and the movements you hold. Also want to give a shout out to Puerto Rico. I somehow didn't say it earlier and deep love. Yes, Elsa, come on, represent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> deep love to Adora Lemon Morales, who wrote our forward. What a transmission it is and what deep, deep legacy she brings to this work and Puerto Rico brings to this work. So I just want to give a shout Thank you so much to everyone who's joined us today. This has been so beautiful. And I'm going to close us out with our devocation. We thank spirit and divine creator. We thank the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. We give thanks to all these geographies and traditions we have called forth to honor the ancestral lineages of collective care. We give our deepest gratitude for the medicines of protection, care, and safety that have surrounded us. May we be guided by spirit and light toward our futures. May we be guided on this journey with purpose and intention to honor our lineages. May we be rooted in our truths and our convictions with humility and grace. We honor the past that will guide us to revolution and transformation. And so another cycle closes as we return these words and incantations to the universe. With love and gratitude to the ancestors and beings that have been on this journey with us, may you return to your sacred home. We commit to using our ancestral memories and lineages as a compass for liberation.
Thank you, thank you, thank you to your teachers for the love and liberation which you model, which you put out there in the world, and for the invitations and incantations you generously offered in this book. Can't wait till more folks get their hands on it. So thank you. Just want to repeat that the book brings so much clarity and it is truly a healing balm. Just reading it helped me to make such connections, to rejoice in all the work that our ancestors have done, how how the ideas are evolving and how central, getting to your point, Kara, how central it is that healing just does not be considered an afterthought or but rather integral to the way that we do our work. And I think that is one of the biggest gifts that this book brings. So thank you both for your brilliance, for your humility, your grace, for, you know, it will be an exceptional introduction to so many people in terms of understanding what HJ is. To me, it brought tremendous clarity and it left me wanting more. So thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to everybody who's joined us today. We appreciate you. We appreciate the work that you are doing. And we look forward to continuing to be in community with all of you. Well, this wraps up our podcast for today. Don't forget to visit our website, www.leadership-reimagined.org, to stay up to date on all that we're doing.